On September 7th, 1940, the Blitz began. It was a period of great tribulation throughout the United Kingdom as the British people endured a, an aerial assault inflicted by Nazi Germany. For eight months, the British people were subjected to almost nightly bombings, resulting in widespread destruction and the loss of thousands of lives. In his phenomenal book, The Splendid and the Vile, Eric Larson tells the story of British life during the Blitz, and he tells about one young man who was asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? That's a common question we ask boys and girls, isn't it? You want to be a fireman? You want to be a police officer? Do you want to be a, a fighter in the Royal Air Force? And the young man's response was indicative of the times in that day. When they asked him, what do you want to be when you grow up? He said, alive. What if I told you that in City Hall, this coming week, here in Pocosin, there was a public forum being held providing expert teaching on how to survive the German Blitz of 1940. I think if I were to tell you that, that you would be totally justified if you responded with one of my favorite gifts. <laughs> Ain't nobody got time for that. I mean, that happened far away from here a long time ago. What relevance could that possibly have to my life today? Sure, it might be interesting historical hit tidbits to learn about, you know, the, the German Blitz, but why do I need to know? It might be tempting for some of you in this room this morning to respond in the same way to Jesus' teaching in our text. If you put your Bible away, I'm going to ask you to open it back up again and have it open to Matthew 24, 15 through 28, so you can follow along as we read God's Word and study it together. I want to remind you that this is Tuesday night. It's just a few days before his upcoming crucifixion. Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem. He's actually right now in our text. He's just outside the city on the Mount of Olives, and he's just told his disciples that that beautiful, glorious temple that they see at the Jerusalem skyline is going to be destroyed. And the disciples ask Jesus two questions. You'll find them in Matthew 24, verse 3. Question number one is, when will these things be? In other words, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And question number two is, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? In other words, when is the world going to end? Question one, when's the temple getting destroyed? Question two, when's the world going to end? Jesus in Matthew 24 is going to answer both questions, but he's not going to make it very easy for us. I told you last week, Matthew 24 is a bit like a box of Christmas lights with two strands of lights all tangled up together, and it's hard to tell where one begins and another ends. In Matthew 24, there's two strands of prophecy one about the destruction of the temple in AD 70, one about the end of the world, and it's sometimes hard to tell which one is Jesus talking about. 
In verses 4 to 12, Jesus told his disciples about the birth pains that would characterize the entire period of time between his first and second coming. In verse 9, Jesus warns his disciples that they're going to face, Christians in every generation are going to face tribulation. In our passage today, Jesus zooms in to warn his disciples about one particular instance of tribulation, something that happened in A.D. 70. And just like you might be tempted to zone out, if I was teaching you how to survive the German Blitz of 1940, you might be tempted to zone out when God's Word talks to his disciples about how to survive the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. That was a long time ago and far away from me. So, right off the bat, let me plead with you, brother, sister, friend, don't zone out this morning. Here's why. Even if the particular details of the catastrophe that fell upon the people of Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago, even if those details are historically situated, there are great, timeless, eternal principles for God's people today because I believe that Christians from every generation must face tribulation. In fact, that's a big idea that I hope to communicate from today's text. Every Christian in every generation will face great tribulation. You're welcome. Now that we're all thoroughly terrified and depressed, let me encourage you with two truths that'll make up the outline for today's sermon as we walk through our text together. Number one, Jesus tells his disciples, his followers, what to expect. And number two, Jesus tells his followers how to respond. So let's get started with number one, Jesus tells his followers what to expect. Look with me beginning in verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Jesus begins by warning his disciples about a great evil coming called the abomination of desolation. Uh, that was prophesied about 500 years earlier by the prophet Daniel. You remember the story, Daniel in the lion's den? That guy. As God's people are exiled in Babylon, a vision comes to Daniel. It's mentioned multiple times in the book of Daniel about this abomination of desolation. We'll look at one verse. It's in Daniel chapter 11. Daniel talks about a king from the north who will attack God's people and then profane the temple. Listen to what he says. Forces from him, from this king from the north, shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Now Jesus, in our text in Matthew 24, says... When that prophecy is fulfilled, the temple is about to be destroyed. Now, here's the crazy thing. If you're the disciples living in Jesus' day, and he says, 
when the abomination of desolation happens, the temple's going to be destroyed. You're going to be like, what? Because most Jewish people believed that the abomination of desolation had already happened. In 167 B.C., I think we've got a timeline to put on the screen, print's kind of small, I can send it to you if you want it. In 167 B.C., almost 400 years after Daniel prophesied, there's this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. He enters into the Jewish temple. He slaughters 40,000 Jews. He plunders the temple. He sacrifices a pig on the altar and sets up an image of Zeus. What he did was an abomination, blasphemy, and the temple was left desolate. Nobody sacrificed in the temple for a long time. Now, we know that most of the Jewish people believed that that was the abomination of desolation because two historical books, they're not in our Bible, they're called the Apocrypha, uh, they're, they're in a collection called the Apocrypha, First and Second Maccabees, written in 100 B.C. They explicitly say that that was the abomination of desolation. All of a sudden, in AD 33, Jesus comes along and says, there's another one coming. And this one is going to be worse. So what happened? In AD 66, the Jewish people grew tired of Roman rule. You remember, all throughout the Gospels, the Jewish people are, they're conquered and ruled by the Romans. So in AD 66, Israel revolts. Say, we're done with Roman rule, and they begin to fight against the Roman people. In AD 68, this group of zealots, they were kind of hardcore uh, Jewish nationalists, enter the temple and start sacrificing, killing anybody who's a Roman sympathizer. Some say they even slaughtered priests on the altar in the temple. And then in AD 70, the Roman general Titus surrounded the city of Jerusalem and absolutely destroyed the city of Jerusalem. If you were to visit Rome today, you can see the Arch of Titus, which commemorates Titus's victory over Jerusalem. If you look carefully in the image, you can see in the picture the Roman soldiers plundering objects from the temple. It was built around A.D. 80-something or 90-something. So listen, what happened in A.D. 70 was not a minor historical footnote. This was a massive event that absolutely devastated the Jewish people. In fact, Jesus says in our text that this is the worst thing that's ever happened to them. Look at verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Now, some people see that verse and they say, how can Jesus possibly be talking about that event? Haven't the Jewish people endured far worse than what happened in AD 70? What about the Holocaust? Because many people are convinced that what happened then could not have possibly been that bad 
many Bible teachers, including many faithful Bible teachers, insist that this passage must be talking about a future period of great tribulation. You've probably heard preachers and teachers describe the, the great tribulation as a seven-year period of intense troubles before Jesus comes back. When I was a kid growing up, our church talked a lot about the great tribulation, and we had debates or whether we thought we were going to be in the tribulation or not. We're we going to be raptured out of it or not. Great tribulation, this seven-year period, end times period, is often taught from passages like Matthew 24. But the phrase great tribulation actually only shows up four times in the New Testament. In Acts 7, Stephen uses the phrase to refer to the, the famine that affected the Jewish people, causing them to go back to Egypt to, to find food during the days of Joseph. In Revelation chapter 2, the, word, the phrase great tribulation is used to describe the judgment that God is going to pour out on a local church in Thyatira because of their false teaching. Neither of those two instances can be referring to an end of the world period of great tribulation. The only possible option is in Revelation chapter 7. I'm going to put it on the screen, verses 13 and 14. Remember, John the apostle is having this vision, and one of the elders addresses John saying, who are these clothed, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And John said to him, sir, you know. He's like, I don't know. Why are you asking me? You know. And the elder said to John, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, some people say, ding, 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 that's it. There's the reference to the future seven-year period of great tribulation. But there's two problems with understanding it that way. One is if you read Revelation 7, it says nothing about a seven-year period of time. Nowhere in Revelation 7. The second problem is if you look at the context, look at the people who are wearing white robes, I'm going to suggest to you it's not referring to a select subset of Christians at the end of the world, but all Christians everywhere. Look at Revelation 7, 9, and 10. We'll put it on your screen. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. <clears throat> in my opinion, that's referring to all Christians everywhere enduring the great tribulation. So here's my personal belief. I believe that the great tribulation is not a seven-year period at the end of the world. It's the entire period, the entire age of the church between the first and second comings of Jesus. Every Christian in every age goes through the great tribulation described in Revelation 7. It's simply another way. Great tribulation is simply another way to talk about the Christian life. Not exactly your best life now, is it? Now, you do not have to agree with my interpretation here. 
PVC members, if you look at your, our church's statement of faith, you will notice we don't say anything promoting one particular view about the Great Tribulation. You can believe that the Great Tribulation is a seven-year period at the end of the world, and you can be a happy, healthy, loved, respected member here at Pocosin Baptist Church. Isn't that great? You know, the thing about church unity is not that we have to agree on everything, but that we agree on the most important things. If you were to, I hope you wouldn't do this, but if you were to put a gun to my head this afternoon and say, what is the great tribulation? My response would be, what do you want me to say? <laughs> That's what I say it is. Not because this doesn't matter, but because this is one of those doctrines where there's a lot of disagreement. Christians agree that Jesus is coming back. We agree that God's people will face trials and tribulations. We don't all necessarily agree on the, the ins and outs of the great tribulation. But my view is that Jesus, when he talks about great tribulation, when the Bible talks about that, it's referring to the entire Christian life. And what happens in AD 70 is one particular instance of great tribulation. Practically, here's just a practical application here. I think many Christians spend far too much time thinking about the Great Tribulation and setting charts and dates for the end of the world than they do thinking, how am I going to be faithful during my tribulation right now? Christian, I may not know every one of you, and I may not know all of what all of you are going through, but I can assure you of this, nearly every person in this room that's a follower of Jesus is enduring some form of tribulation. Are you considering how to be faithful amidst that tribulation now? Now, I haven't answered completely a question that we asked earlier, and that is, how can Jesus possibly be talking about what happened in A.D. 70 when he says, this is the worst tribulation the world has ever seen, was it really that bad? Historians paint a really grisly picture of what happened in those days. Since the siege began during Passover week, the city was swelling with people from all over the known Jewish world in the city, and then they were suddenly cut off as Roman soldiers surrounded the city. The Romans, over the next five months, began to starve the Jewish people as they cut off their food and water supply. There are records of people selling their children to obtain food. Some ate from the public sewers. Others ate leather shields, hay, and clothing. In the worst instances, some even resorted to cannibalism. Thousands who fled the city at night looking for food were captured by the Romans and crucified just outside the city walls so everybody could see. On one particular day, 500 men and women were crucified outside the city walls. Bodies were left to rot in the streets to such an extent that often the street was not visible. The sounds of war were, were rocking the, the city streets day and night, echoing throughout the city streets, but historians said that the sounds of people screaming in agony were louder. 
When the Romans eventually set fire to the city in AD 70, some said that what was used to quench some of the fires was the blood that was filling the city streets. The entire population of Jerusalem was either killed or captured. Josephus, a historian in that day, said over a million were killed and over 100,000 were enslaved. D.A. Carson, in his excellent commentary on the book of Matthew, says this, There have been greater numbers of deaths, but never so high a percentage of a great city's population so thoroughly and painfully exterminated and enslaved as during the fall of Jerusalem. Josephus wrote this, The afflictions which befell the Jews were the greatest of all those, not only that have been in our times, but in a manner, it appears to me that the misfortunes of all men from the beginning of the world, if they be compared to those of the Jews, are not so considerable as they were. Sounds a lot like Jesus' words in verse 21, doesn't it? But let me suggest to you that was what was most devastating about the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 was not the loss of life. Do you know what a Jewish person uh, self-respecting, God-fearing Jewish person cared about more than his, his or her own life? The temple. That was the place where God's glory dwelled. That was their pride and joy. And they had to watch as Jewish zealots entered the city and killed people in the temple. You know what's worse than Antiochus Epiphanes slaughtering a pig on the temple? Jewish people killing Jewish people on the temple, in the temple. And then, when Titus entered the city, the temple was completely destroyed so that not one stone remained upon another. Did you realize that in all the history of the world, the Jewish people have never had a longer period of time without a temple? It's been almost 2,000 years. Go back and look at your Bibles. Look at the, the periods of time where the temple had been destroyed and then rebuilt. They have never had a stretch of time longer than this, not even close. Why? Because this is the abomination that causes desolation. There's no more temple. It's destroyed. This is the most devastating thing they can imagine. So how do we respond to all of this? As I said a moment ago, I believe every Christian everywhere must endure great tribulation in this life. If you were with us last week, we talked about some of the birth pains, the, the, the afflictions that Christians are going to face in every generation until the return of Christ. There will be false messiahs, people and things that promise to save you and they don't. There will be great evil Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, fires, hurricanes, tornadoes, pandemics. There will be persecution, whether it's the soft persecution of being called a bigot because you believe the Bible, or the hard persecution of having your head chopped off because you're a Christian in another part of the world. There'll be persecution. There will be apostasy. People that you loved and you, you were in relationship with in the church that walk away from Jesus and say, I don't believe that anymore. That lawlessness will increase. 
There will be false teaching. And we will be tempted to love less as the world grows more and more dark. These things will affect every generation of Christians until Jesus returns, not just a select group at the end of the world. If every Christian in every generation will face tribulation, we shouldn't be surprised by suffering, should we, Christian? We should expect these things. But how should we respond to them? That's our second truth this morning. Number two, Jesus tells his followers how to respond. In the rest of our text, Jesus tells his disciples how they are to respond when Jerusalem is destroyed. And although our circumstances are different, we're not living in Jerusalem, it's not AD 70, there are principles in Jesus' words to his disciples that can help us if we have ears to hear. Before we go through these, I just want to take a moment and notice the compassion of Jesus, that he would take time. He's about to die on the cross in just a few days to prepare his disciples for the most cataclysmic events they've ever experienced. Every single one of those men, except for Judas, every single one of those men is going to experience this. What would it have done to their faith if they walked through that without Jesus warning them in advance? Jesus here is preparing his disciples to persevere. Isn't that how he does it? Doesn't God prepare us to persevere by speaking to us in his word? That's what he's doing. This is kindness. This is beauty. This is glory. This is mercy that Jesus is giving to his disciples. I want to walk through the remaining portion of our text, and I want to consider three application questions as we listen to how Jesus tells his disciples to respond. Question number one is, should we run from tribulation? Should we run from tribulation? Now, your initial answer to that is probably absolutely not. And yet, you look at the text, Jesus tells them to do just that. Look with me beginning in verse 16. Then, after they see the abomination of desolation, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Jesus is saying, listen, when you see those signs, run. Don't get your stuff. Don't grab anything. Run. And you see his compassion there for women and infants? And you notice also that Jesus says, pray it's not going to be on a Sabbath. That suggests that what Jesus is talking about is going to happen during the time when the Sabbath laws are still pretty well practiced by the people in Jerusalem. But what does he say to them? Run. When you see the signs, run. What are the signs? One sign was the abomination of desolation we discussed earlier. So when the Jewish people watched in horror, when the Jewish Christians watched in horror as the zealots killed people in the temple, they said, Jesus talked to us about that, didn't he? Maybe we need to get out of here. There's another sign that Jesus gave his disciples that's only recorded in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse in Luke 21.20, 20, 
Jesus says, when you see the Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Now, you might see that and say, wait a second. Once they're surrounded by armies, there's no way they could have escaped. I already told you that. And that is true. Once Titus surrounded the city in AD 70, nobody got out. But if you read the history, we learn that in AD 66, right after the Jewish revolt began, a Roman commander named Cestius surrounded the city of Jerusalem and then inexplicably took his armies, retreated, and went home, giving Christians in the city of Jerusalem plenty of time to escape the city. We think, based on historical records, that many of these believers fled to the mountains just like Jesus commanded in verse 16. Many of them settled in a place called Pella, Several ancient historians state that no Christians died during the fall of Jerusalem because all of them saw the signs and got out. Do you see the care and compassion of King Jesus preparing a way for his people to escape great tribulation? Now, let's get back to the application question we asked just a moment ago. Does this mean that it's always right to run from tribulation? Is it always right to run? Is that what Christians do? We just run? The answer must be no, because if you read through the rest of the New Testament, you'll learn that the disciples faced great tribulation, great persecution. All of them but John died for their faith. And John died as an old man after enduring much persecution with courage. So how do I know if I'm supposed to run or not? Should I stay or should I go? How do I know? Here's a principle. Be willing to risk your life for the sake of the gospel. For everything else, Use wisdom. Why did Jesus tell his people to leave Jerusalem? Because Titus wasn't crushing the city of Jerusalem because there were Christians there. Titus was crushing people that revolted against him. And so the Jewish Christians were able to flee the city because this was not a gospel battle. In the same way, Christian, not every battle in our culture is a hill worth dying on, is it? If you've looked at the political atmosphere in our culture the last few years or so, I've never heard so much talk about a future civil war in our country as what I've heard over the last few years. Now, God knows if that might be what awaits us, but let me suggest this to you, Christian. You do not have to die over that battle. That is not your battle. There might be all sorts of battles between the extreme right and the extreme left, but Christian, die for the gospel. You don't need to die for your senator or your presidential candidate. There are some fights that you can just let happen around you. It's not a sin, Christian, to seek deliverance from some tribulation. It's not wrong, loved one, to pursue deliverance from cancer. It's not necessarily a sin to look for a new job with better hours or better pay. 
The Christian call to suffer doesn't mean you have to walk headlong into every form of suffering wherever it faces you. Sometimes, if it's not a gospel issue, it's okay to seek deliverance. So that's question number one, which leads us to a second question. Will we survive tribulation? I wonder if the disciples were wondering that same thing as Jesus explained what awaited them. And in his kindness, Jesus comforted them in verse 22. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now, this is another one of those places where Bible teachers debate. Is, is Jesus talking about A.D. 70 in verse 22? Or is he talking about the end of the world? I'm going to suggest to you, I think right here, when Jesus talks about those days, he's not referring to the days around the destruction of the temple, but the entire age of the church. Notice Jesus says, no human would be saved. That suggests something bigger than no human in Jerusalem, doesn't it? Or notice he says, he's going to cut the day short for the sake of the elect, which suggests something bigger than the elect who lived in Jerusalem around A.D. 70. So I think it's better to look at verse 22 and understand Jesus' words as referring to the entire age of the church. In other words, this is a promise, Christian, that your suffering has an expiration date. It will not last forever. Jesus will deliver you. The days of your tribulation will be cut short. Let me ask you, Christian, what tribulation are you enduring right now? Maybe it's mistreatment for being a follower of Jesus. Maybe it's an intense temptation that's sinking its grip into your soul over and over and over again. Maybe it's a painful relationship that's crushing you. Maybe it's a form of physical suffering that's bringing you chronic pain. Maybe it's a deep and dark depression. Maybe it's something that seems small compared to other people, like a, a difficult work environment or your kids throwing temper tantrums. But to you, it's a big deal. Christian, I cannot tell you when your tribulation will end, but I can tell you this. Jesus will give you all that you need to endure it. Listen to the words we sang earlier. Should persecution rage and flame, still trust in your Redeemer's name. In fiery trials, you shall see that as your days, your strength shall be. So sing with joy, afflicted one. The battle's fierce, but the victory's won. God shall supply all that you need. Yes, as your days, your strength shall be. Press on toward that blessed shore. We're almost home. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, let me plead with you to turn to Jesus today because none of those promises are true for you apart from Christ. If you're in this room 
trusting in your good works, trusting in that you're better than that guy or that gal, trusting in your church membership, trusting in whatever but Jesus. If that's you this morning, your tribulation will never end. I don't say that with glee, loved one. I say that to you pleading with you to forsake your sin and run to Christ. You don't have to suffer forever. He came to this world and lived a sinless life and died a sinner's death and rose from the dead so that if you will but turn to him, you can find rescue. Maybe not from every trial and tribulation in your life today, but from eternal trials and tribulations separated from him forever in a place called hell. Would you run to Jesus, dear friend, and put your faith in him today? But to the Christians in this room, do not give up. Do not give up because Jesus promises that the days of your tribulation will be cut short and you will be saved. One final question to ask ourselves as we seek to apply this text, how, how will we survive tribulation? How will we survive it? It's one thing to say that we will. It's another thing entirely to, to ask how. As suffering intensifies, there is a fierce temptation to look everywhere else but Jesus for rescue. That's exactly what Jesus describes in verses 23 to 26 talks about false Christs, some even performing great signs and wonders, trying to lead people astray. Jesus says, don't believe any of that. He says to you, when I return, it's going to be obvious. Verse 27, as lightning comes from the east and shines in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather when a corpse is left in a field, it's easy to tell where it is because the vultures begin to hover above it, right? Jesus says, no one is going to miss my return. Nobody. <coughs> we'll learn more about this next week. But Jesus is saying, this is an unmistakable thing. I know some of us perhaps grew up on the Left Behind novels, but let me just comfort you, dear Christian. You will not accidentally miss the return of Jesus you can't. Every eye will see him. There's no way that you're going to miss it. He's coming for you, Christian, to bring you home. But I want you to notice in verse 24, there's some words that are perhaps a little troubling. Jesus says, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. There's both great hope and great warning in those words, isn't there? The great warning is that we too, Christians, we too could be deceived. There are people that want to deceive you. Christian, Pocosin Baptist Church, how are we going to resist the false teaching that's threatening us on every side? Is it by studying all the false teachers? Let me figure out what Stephen Furtick says. Let me figure out what T.D. Jake says. Let me figure out what this person says, what that person says. Is that the way? 
Let me suggest to you the way that we steel ourselves against false teaching is by diving into God's Word. That's it. That's it. How do we resist it? By being faithful to the Scriptures. It's not our goal or our job to know every possible false teacher out there, but to know the truth. But there's great hope in verse 24 too, because Jesus says, if possible. In other words, it's not really possible, is it? Jesus is going to keep his church. None will pluck us out of his hand. So how will we survive tribulation? What's the answer? By our promise-keeping God and our faithful perseverance. God's sovereignty, our responsibility. We persevere, he keeps us. That's how we survive. If every Christian in every generation will face great tribulation, then we need to know how to respond. When Winston Churchill spoke to the British people about the German Blitz, he famously said this, it would be foolish to describe the gravity, to disguise the gravity of the hour. It would be still more foolish to lose heart and courage. So too for all Christians living between the first and second comings of Christ. It would be foolish for me to disguise the tribulation that we will endure as Christians. But it would be far more foolish for us to lose heart or for us to lose courage. If I could say in one sentence how we're going to remain steadfast through tribulation, I would say this, look to Jesus. That's it. Jesus said this in John 16, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And how did Jesus overcome the world? By enduring a tribulation far greater than any of us can imagine by being forsaken by his closest friends, by being denied and betrayed, by absorbing the wrath of God from his own father on the cross. He did all of that and more. Why? So that we could be saved. So look to Christ, church, and he will deliver you. Would you pray with me?